Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. In this episode, we continue our exploration of the book Hard Work Never Killed Anyone, How the Idolization of Work Sustains This Deadly Lie, by John Bottomley, published by Morningstar Publishing in 2015. In the last episode, we examined Bottomley's analysis of how the Church, in its congregation-centric understanding of hospitality and pastoral care, often contributes to denying agency to the victims of workplace harm, precisely because it sees them as the recipients of the Church's outreach, rather than as agents who reach out to the Church on their own account. We explored the change in Bottomley's own understanding of hospitality and pastoral care as he and his colleagues developed the companioning model of pastoral care and how this model departed from the church's own captivity to modernity's privatization of faith as reflected in the separation of the governance of the church from the pastoral activity of church organizations. In today's episode, we will look at Bottomley's examination of the economic factors underlying work-related harm, and how society's mechanisms for dealing with the death and injury that occurs within the workplace marginalizes and re-traumatizes those who have been harmed by or who are grieving as a result of work-related injury and death. So without any further ado, let us begin Ergasia episode 24, Hard Work Never Killed Anyone, Part 6, The Economic Factors in Work-Related Death, Grief and Trauma. It goes without saying that the families of those who are killed or injured at work experience an immediate economic impact, typically through the loss of income occasioned by a fatality or serious injury. Likewise, businesses often experience a shutdown in work activity while an incident is investigated, as well as the costs associated with remedying an unsafe workplace. Additionally, employers can be fined if found guilty of an offence against relevant laws. However, even in the event of a penalty being issued against an employer found to be responsible for the death and injury of employees, traumatised and grieving family members can often be re-victimised by a legal system 
that reduces the lives of their loved ones to merely economic values. This re-victimising reflects the fact that many of the costs associated with work-related harm remain hidden within a pervasive silence that engulfs grieving and traumatised families. The idolatry of hard work demands that human beings adjust their broken lives to the demands of economic necessity, the operations of the legal system, and the ideological belief in work's ultimate meaning for individual legitimacy and social progress. In this context, Bottomley notes that workers' compensation schemes in Australia entitle the dependents of workers killed by a compensable work-related cause to a lump-sum compensation payment, as well as funds to access counselling and funeral services. Through their contact with bereaved families, Bottomley and his colleagues discovered that many people experience difficulty navigating the workers' compensation system, and as a result, they were able to establish relationships with insurance companies as they advocated on behalf of their clients. They also discovered through these relationships that many insurers struggled with understanding the needs of bereaved persons and did not provide sufficient training for staff. This experience taught Bottomley and his colleagues that the workers' compensation system too often perpetuates and exacerbates the injustice of work-related harm because it, firstly, operates on the basis of assigning an economic value to the life of the deceased worker, without addressing the human value of that person to their loved ones, or considering what the loss of relationship with the deceased means to their family and friends. Secondly, the system assumes that, where the deceased had children, their surviving partner will simply be able to assume full responsibility for the welfare of those children. This disregards the reality that the surviving partner is often overwhelmed by the grief associated with their spouse's death and may, for an extended period of time, have a diminished capacity to adequately fulfil their parenting duties. The focus on monetary compensation does nothing to attend to the complex needs of traumatised families. Thirdly, the funding provided for counselling only contains limited flexibility for responding to the complex grief needs of bereaved persons, as well as the number of family members who may require support through counselling at different times and at different stages of the grief process. Because the workers' compensation system awards compensation on a case-by-case basis, Families often feel isolated and marginalised by the system as a whole. This reflects a lack of policy debate about the impact of the system on bereaved families, as well as a deficiency of research about the health and well-being impacts of the system's approach upon grieving family members. This case-by-case emphasis was reflected in the initial focus by Bottomley and his colleagues on deaths caused by traumatic workplace incidents. 
This in turn was a reflection of the fact that many Australian jurisdictions at the time, as they still do now, only record in their annual reporting of workplace mortality those deaths that arise from traumatic workplace events. Over time, however, Bottomley and his colleagues became aware that government agencies were not including in their reports those deaths which occurred through other work-related causes. For Bottomley, this failure was highlighted by the experience of a colleague whose clergyman husband had died from a heart attack. The church insurer paid Bottomley's colleague workers' compensation insurance. In other words, the church as employer had caused the stress that contributed to her husband's fatal heart attack and had compensated Bottomley's colleague with a payment. However, what Bottomley's colleague realised was that this was the exception, not the norm, an exception reflected in the fact that the agency's grief support program was only supplied to the families of people killed by a traumatic workplace incident. As a result, Bottomley and his colleagues realised that the government data vastly underreported the problem of work-related death. People were dying from a multitude of work-related causes, but neither the compensation system nor the support program developed by Bottomley and his colleagues was attending to this fact. As a consequence, the agency for which Bottomley worked began to undertake research in the late 1990s into the work-related factors in suicide. Within a decade, they were providing grief support for nearly two dozen clients impacted by work-related suicide. A parallel program also provided support to families bereaved by asbestos-related deaths. Bottomley and his colleagues also produced research in the same period that highlighted the denial by the medical profession and the compensation system of the scientific evidence linking work stress with heart disease. Bottomley argues that the failure by the workers' compensation system to properly report all the ways in which work contributes to disease and death reflects a spiritual blindness to the terrible human toll taken by the ideology of hard work. This blindness hides from public view the true cost of modernity's construction of work and economy. At the same time, many families bereaved by a work-related death are denied access to the workers' compensation system, further exacerbating the economic injustice already present through the loss of family income. At the same time, the narrow focus on monetary compensation denies grieving families access to the kinds of personal and social resources that would enable them to restore their lives as reintegrated members of society. For Bottomley, this situation is itself a product of the post-Enlightenment elevation of objective rational reasoning to the status of being the most effective means for understanding and controlling the natural world and public life. 
As a consequence, grief became increasingly viewed as a problem for the individual, the preserve of psychology and related services. In this paradigm, the task of grief work was to return a bereaved person to a state of normal functioning, wherein they could once more resume their status as a productive participant in public life. Grief thus came to be seen as a form of illness, a temporary disruption to the normal operation of life, from which people recovered to once more become rational autonomous agents operating in a rational, orderly social milieu. An outcome of this privatization of grief is that it is now viewed as not having any legitimate place in the modern world of work. Consequently, when a death occurs due to work-related factors, the full human dimensions of the grief experienced by work colleagues and family members is forced out of the workplace and into the private sphere of therapy. Indeed, the therapeutic management of grief is dedicated to the project of adjusting bereaved people to the idea that this is necessary for individual and social progress. By removing grief from its social context, even those workplaces that pay attention to employees' grief tend to do so by referring them to counselling services external to the workplace itself. External, that is, to the very context where their grief is located. But this privatisation of grief also serves the critical ideological function of shifting the economic cost of grief away from employers. By creating the illusion that death has been overcome in the public realm of work, the cost of work-related death falls mostly on bereaved families or the wider community through the taxpayer-funded workers' compensation scheme. Only a fraction of the cost of work-related death is borne by employers. Nor was this inequitable distribution of the costs of work-related death in Australia even known about until the publication of a report by the Productivity Commission in 1995. The ideological function played by the privatisation of grief brings into focus the limitations of speaking about work in strictly political or economic terms. The idolatry of work has made it the centre of universal human devotion through its claim that it provides the only legitimate pathway toward personal reward and accomplishment. But by turning modernity's construction of work into an idol, humans have in turn rendered the idolatry of work and its claim on human allegiance immune to critique or challenge. This silence in turn reflects the idol's demand for absolute obedience, a silence that cloaks the true extent of its power over our lives. This cloaking blinds people to the harm done to human life by the idolatry of hard work, silencing its victims' cry for justice 
and forcing the bereaved to bear the heaviest economic burden of work-related death. As a consequence, all those burdened by work-related bereavement are held firmly captive to the crushing isolation of privatized grief. This isolation is exacerbated by the fact that occupational health and safety statutes are enforced through an event-focused criminal justice system. Bereaved families often experience the prosecution of the transgressors of occupational health and safety law as not being about their loved one or the impact of that person's death upon family members. The law's focus on the event constricts the court's attention to the question of whether or not breaches of relevant laws have occurred. The humanity of the victim and their bereaved family vanishes altogether. Bottomley and his colleagues discovered that their clients were frequently re-traumatized as a result. By contrast, when the human dimensions are attended to, genuine healing and a sense of justice and restoration can result. This was the experience of one of Bottomley's colleagues whose brother was killed in a workplace accident and who was traumatized by a lengthy legal process which involved an appeal against the original conviction instigated at the assistance of one of the employer's directors. After the legal process had been concluded, Bottomley's colleague was able to make contact with the managing director of the company through the agency of a third party. The managing director then met with Bottomley's colleague and her mother on multiple occasions, listening intently and with compassion as they detailed all the circumstances associated with their loved one's death. The result was a genuine commitment on the part of the managing director to honour the dignity of Bottomley's colleague's brother by committing in turn to the health and safety of the company's other employees. These meetings, the conversations they precipitated, and the commitments that followed were the source of genuine healing for both Bottomley's colleague and her mother. The desire for this kind of healing contact in which bereaved families get to tell their story is common among those grieving the death of a loved one due to work-related causes. However, the adversarial legal system within which occupational health and safety is enmeshed frequently frustrates this desire because of legal advice that counsels the parties to not have anything to do with one another. This reality motivated Bottomley and his colleagues to better understand the circumstances of companies affected by a work-related death. They discovered new dimensions of fear, anxiety, grief and loss as employers' experience of work-related death was likewise compartmentalised into the private world of personal bereavement. Once again, the idolatry of hard work causes the human experience of loss to be hidden from wider public view. 
Yet many employers with whom Bottomley and his colleagues worked wanted to ensure that other employers didn't go through the same experience by learning from their suffering and committing themselves to a renewed culture of workplace health and safety. However, this desire was frequently stifled by the legal context in which occupational health and safety operates, precipitating high levels of isolation in the face of work-related death. This isolation was compounded by the structural barriers imposed by organizational ideology and by a sense of powerlessness produced by the taboos against the normal human responses of grief insisted upon by the idolatry of hard work. Bottomley and his colleagues noted that the many barriers to the healthy grieving of a traumatic workplace event likewise operated as barriers to the effective changing of workplace systems and culture, changes that might otherwise prevent a future repetition of past tragedies. Bottomley and his colleagues also identified those practices that encourage healthy grieving and the renewal of commitment to workplace safety. These practices emphasize the need for trust among those facing the trauma of a work-related death. In the wake of tragedy, trust in life and the world may be shattered. Rebuilding this trust is critical to addressing the needs of those confronted by bereavement and trauma. Bottomley and his colleagues focused on the development of restorative justice processes as the key means through which this need for trust could be facilitated. Whereas the prosecutorial model of occupational health and safety enforcement focuses on violation of the relevant statutes, restorative justice focuses on the harm done to both the person who has died from work-related causes as well as the people who grieve that person's death. Restorative justice acknowledges that there can be no monetary value placed on a person's life, seeking instead to restore the sacred value of life by ensuring that respect and dignity are accorded to the memory of the person who has died, as well as to the lived experience of those who are bereaved by that person's death. In restoring the human value of life, restorative justice seeks to establish the platform upon which agreement might be reached in particular contexts for future improvement to occupational health and safety. In its concern to restore and acknowledge the sacred value of human life, restorative justice reflects the prophetic critique of the idolatry of hard work, and unlike the legal system, can create the space in which work-related death may be fully and respectfully mourned. And unlike the workers' compensation system, restorative justice can create the space in which we re-interrogate the claims made on human life by modernity's construction of work and economy, giving impetus to the prophetic task of bringing to public fruition 
a transformative politics of justice and compassion. on that note that we leave this episode of Ergasia. In our next episode, we will undertake an exploration of Bottomley's argument that Australia needs a renewed prophetic dreaming if it is to overcome the national forgetting of injustice implicit, among other things, in Australia's colonial history. In the meantime, to leave your thoughts about this podcast or to offer any suggestions or ideas for future subjects, please go to the webpage at www.ergasia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.